Welcome back to Minds Matter, a podcast sponsored by the Monash Center for Consciousness and Contemplative Studies. I'm Ava. And I'm Beth. And on Minds Matter, we explore research from neuroscience and psychology while occasionally talking through our own personal experiences. This week on the podcast, I spoke to Dr. Jessica Maxwell, who is an assistant professor in the departments of psychology and health, aging, and society at McMaster University. This episode is potentially not safe for work a little bit in the sense that we talk about sex and relationships that are both long-term and more casual. Before we go on, Beth and I just wanted to put a disclaimer here that we know that sex and relationships can be fraught, difficult topics for some people, and sex and relationships themselves might be associated with not only complex emotions, but sometimes even trauma. This episode does not address sex and relationships on the kind of darker side of that spectrum. And what we speak about today will be a pretty light look at sex in situations and contexts that we want to emphasize are generally already healthy relationships. So this episode is really about how sex can help those relationships thrive and how our sex lives can thrive and do even better rather than addressing those darker aspects. So with that being said, in this episode, Dr. Maxwell and I talked about a couple of concepts called sexual growth beliefs and sexual destiny beliefs. And as you listen, maybe you can think about what types of beliefs that you hold about sex. In general, though, as we mentioned, this episode is about relationships and dating with an emphasis on sex. So if you have little kids that are listening and you're not ready to have those conversations with them, this might be an episode that you might want to put headphones on for. But It's all, I would say, pretty much PG-13 for the most part. I hope you enjoy, and I hope you figure out what your own sexual beliefs are from this episode. Hi, I'm Dr. Jessica Maxwell. I go by Jess. I'm an assistant prof at McMaster University in the Department of Health, Aging, and Society, cross-appointed with social psychology. So I am a social psychologist by training, and my research focuses on how couples can have better relationships and specifically better sex lives. So a lot of your research has looked at implicit beliefs, specifically in the domain of relationships and sex. But before we get into those specifics, could you tell us a little bit about what implicit beliefs are in psychology in general and then how they've been applied to relationships? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked this because sometimes I jump right into my own research and forget to give the broader context and give shout outs to the to, to the people who have done a lot of this work before me. So the term implicit beliefs or implicit theories, it could be a bit of a misnomer if you think of things like implicit memory or depending on your background, but they use this term to say that it's sort of implicit as in it's not always consciously articulated. So this can often be referred to also as like lay theories. And what this has usually meant essentially is your belief that you can change an attribute versus the idea that it's set in stone or fixed. So a lot of people are familiar with the amazing work of Carol Dweck. So she has a pop psych book called Mindset. Um, She's done so much great work and really pioneered this. And I feel like when I tell people about it, oftentimes as soon as I describe it, they're like, oh yeah, I've heard about that. Like maybe you heard about it on a self-help podcast or, you know, in an article. So it can be about anything really. So they've looked at implicit theories about weight loss. Like, do you think you can control it or not? Implicit theories about intelligence. It's often kind of where we see a lot of the press on it, right? Is like, in schools, do you think that you can really work hard to improve your intelligence and your abilities? Or do you think you just have sort of an innate ability that you can't really do much about? So definitely been applied to, I feel like any domain, someone's come up with an implicit theory about it. And like I, I mentioned, really focuses on this idea of malleability and control versus fixed or not controllable. And so after Carol Dweck's work in the late 90s, wow, now I feel old, the late 90s, researcher Chip Mee applied them to relationships and sort of changed them a little bit. So it seems like things work a little bit differently in the relationship sphere. And what I mean by that is that it's not just a matter of thinking you can change things or not, but he actually found two independent sets of beliefs, the belief in relationship growth and the belief in relationship destiny. So if you believe in relationship growth, you kind of think I can make a relationship with almost anyone work. I just need to put in some hard work and effort. Like if we fight, it's okay. That could bring us closer together. 
Whereas if you believe in relationship destiny, I often think of that more as like soulmate type beliefs. It's the idea that you just need to find a good person and then your relationship will work really well. And people who have relationship destiny beliefs also think you can kind of diagnose the success of a relationship very early on. So these might be people, I'm thinking that, you know, you might be able to think of people in your own life, for instance, or in the media who, you know, they have one bad date with someone and it's like, no, no, we're not meant to be a piece out or they bail at the first sign of trouble often. So you specifically have applied this idea of implicit beliefs, not only to relationships, but to beliefs about sex and relationships. So could you talk about what you found for sexual growth and sexual destiny beliefs and what that means in your research? Yeah, so I kind of just really applied those same concepts to the sexual domain. And again, I found that there really is this idea of sexual growth. So it's that idea that sexual satisfaction comes through hard work and effort. I always say it's like your sex life is like a garden. You have to water it, nurture it uh, to maintain sexual satisfaction. Whereas sexual destiny beliefs is more the idea that if you want to have good sex or sexual satisfaction, you just need to find a good compatible partner. So it kind of encompasses a little bit ideas of like natural compatibility or the importance of that initial spark. So people who have sexual destiny beliefs think that they can tell the ultimate success of their relationship from early sexual experiences. And this was the focus of my dissertation at the University of Toronto. So in that, using a lot of different samples, what we found was that in general, having more of those sexual growth beliefs tended to be associated with higher sexual satisfaction and relationship satisfaction. And that even extended to your romantic partner. So, you know, above and beyond my partner's own beliefs, if I really had this idea that we need to work hard on our sex life, he would be happier in his sex life and relationship. Whereas the story for sex destiny is always a little bit more mixed. So essentially what ends up happening is if a destiny believer is confident that they're with a good partner, they found their their soulmate or the one, then they look okay, right? They're doing fine. But what I found in my research is if they're experiencing sexual challenges or sexual disagreements or starting to doubt that their partner's an ideal fit for them, then they report lower relationship quality. So one of the ways I framed it is these people seem to really closely tie their sex life to their relationship. And so troubles in the bedroom kind of spell troubles for their overall relationship. And then since that time, I've had the the great opportunity to work with a lot of other colleagues and other samples, and I've been able to kind of show this similar pattern of effects in breast cancer patients, in new couples, and a variety of different things. And then what's been so exciting is other researchers have ran with these beliefs as well. And so from their research, we know some of the reasons why sexual growth beliefs can be so beneficial. So for instance, if you believe sex takes effort and work, you tend to be a better sexual communicator. You tend to be a little bit more mindful in terms of your sex life. You tend to be more sexually responsive to your partner, like willing to meet their needs. And again, thanks to collaborators and some other research, we've been able to look at this in more clinical samples as well. So yeah, it's been great to see, but it all boils down to growth beliefs tend to be good for your relationship and sex life and destiny beliefs, sometimes negative, but particularly negative if there's a challenge or a disagreement. Okay, so we should kind of all be striving to have those types of growth beliefs because it seems like it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy that if you believe if we've had bad sex or we're not compatible, it feels like we're not compatible, then the relationship is going to be bad. And then you bring that into the relationship because you believe this isn't going to work. That's exactly what I think, right? Because especially from my research and others, we we haven't been able to pinpoint when it changes for a destiny of believer, like what makes them tick to be like, nope, nope, they're not compatible. Like it's over. And and I haven't seen anyone really try to see if we could intervene to make them feel more compatible Mm. after they have those feelings. So I think you're dead on. I really encourage people to have more sexual growth beliefs, because at least in my research, it seems like if you have those beliefs, you're more willing to put in effort and work to your sex life. And I was able to do an initial study where we tried to essentially make people endorse those beliefs (laughs) through reading a fake article, kind of touting the benefits of growth beliefs. And again, it kind of seems like once you read that, you might be higher in relationship quality and say you're more willing to sacrifice for your partner and put in that effort. So I'm definitely of the mindset that sexual growth interventions would be a great way forward. Now, to be a responsible scientist, I should also mention that there are some limits to sexual growth beliefs. So myself and others have found some of these sort of boundary conditions where 
maybe just thinking you need to work on your sex life isn't enough. (laughs) So I'll give you one concrete example. In my own research, we did an experiment where we gave people fake feedback that they were really incompatible with their romantic partner. And when we did this and said, you know, you're in the, I think we said the ninth percentile of compatibility, like you're really not that compatible with your partner then we weren't seeing those benefits of sexual growth beliefs for relationship and sexual quality. So I think it's really speaking to how this kind of can-do attitude might have its limits. If you think, oh my gosh, I am putting an effort into my relationship, but yet you're telling me we're so incompatible. Maybe this is fruitless. That's at least what I think is going on there. And there's been some suggestions that your partner having growth beliefs might not be good for you. So that's been found in women who have female sexual interest and arousal disorder. So essentially clinical levels of low desire, as well as new moms. So again, I think this is kind of taking it all together. It's potentially suggesting that there might be times in a relationship where wanting to work on the relationship or feeling like you need to work on your sex life in particular could be a bit demotivating or distressing, especially if we think of women with low desire, they may not be able to change it. Or, you know, if you've just had a baby, maybe feeling like you need to put in all that effort and work is just a lot. (laughs) But having said that, taken together those, you know, brief contexts where it doesn't seem beneficial, the rest of the research is really on the side of yes, believe in those growth beliefs, whether sexual or relational, growth beliefs seem to be always associated with the good stuff. That's really interesting. Also thinking about those boundary conditions and it seems like being flexible is also really important and especially in a long-term relationship when your life is going to cycle. So probably sex is also going to cycle too. I don't know if you know about research on whether there's, I think Mm. anecdotally, it feels like if you talk to your friends, there's seasons in relationships where maybe people are more physically intimate more often and not, but then that's not represented in the media, it feels like. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up the media too. So the answer is like 100%. There's there's really good documentation of that, right? Not to scare any listeners, but some research suggests even just one year into your relationship, sexual satisfaction tends to decline. We know the same for sexual desire. I have lots of tips we can get into later about how to keep the, the passion or the spark, but ebbs and flows are totally natural. Exactly. And I think you're totally right. Those aren't something we see portrayed all the time, right? Or we'll see the opposite where we'll see the idea of like a sexless marriage, but no one's showing like, okay, you could have a period of a dry spell and then reignite the passion. It's almost like the implication that if you let the dry spell happen, you're doomed. But yeah, definitely lots of variability in couples. And I think on the idea of the media, that's where I think sexual destiny beliefs come from as well. Because I think we're still, I mean, things are getting a little bit better even since I've started researching this, but I feel like We see a lot more media messages about that chemistry and finding a really good sexual lover and the passion. And we see less about the nitty gritty of working on your sex life, which, you know, might include like using sex toys or scheduling sex or things that might seem quote unquote less sexy, but are the reality of how couples are maintaining passion in long-term relationships. We'll ask about how to maintain the passion maybe closer to the end. We'll leave that to the end to make sure people listen to the whole episode so they get their tips. Um, But so speaking of the media and of these other types of beliefs that people might have around relationships, because there's just so much cultural influence on these really intimate parts of our lives. We've also looked at these other kind of implicit beliefs, but more just beliefs about gender roles in relationships, specifically in heterosexual relationships. So could you talk about how you went about this study and the effects that you found on initiating sex and comfort refusing sex in terms of those beliefs about gender roles? Yeah. And I love, again, kind of the link to the media as well, because I think there's so many beliefs that are factoring into our sex life, some that we're not aware of, right? So this was work led by my grad student at the time, August Harrington. So shout out to August. And what we were surprised by is when he was telling me about all the research on gender roles and sex, he mentioned that oftentimes research will just look at like my beliefs as a woman about what women should do in society or men's beliefs about women, but not my beliefs about how both men and women should behave in society. And that's why, unfortunately, this study is fairly heterosexist, just because the theories kind of necessitated that we were talking about a relationship between a man and a woman. And so what we did was we assessed traditional gender ideology, which it's it's kind of fun to look at the scale. It's items like traditional beliefs about women are things like women should not swear, kind of like purity vibes. Traditional beliefs about men are things like men should watch football, men should be the boss, 
So these very traditional beliefs about gender that I'm always surprised. I'm like, it's 2023. No way is anyone going to endorse these items, but they do. So what we really wanted to make sure we did was that we simultaneously looked at how people's beliefs about men's gender roles and women's gender roles then went on to associate with their reported comfort initiating and refusing sex because we felt like things could look a little bit different. And what we ended up finding was this unique combination effect for women where they only felt more sexually assertive. So they only said they felt more comfortable initiating and refusing sex if they were low on both sets of traditional beliefs. So women had to have more kind of liberal, less traditional values about both men's and women's roles in order to feel comfortable. So I think this can make sense if we think about what these roles might mean in the bedroom, right? That you might have to feel like it's not men's job to initiate sex. I can feel empowered to do it. I don't feel like it's my duty to please a man or things like that. So you kind of have to have those non-traditional beliefs about both men and women in order to make it work. Whereas the story here was actually a little bit more simple for men. So what we found here was that men's beliefs about men's roles made them less comfortable refusing sex, but their traditional beliefs about women's roles were associated with less comfort initiating sex. So here what might be happening is that if men think they have to behave in that stereotypical macho way, then they're like, I can never say no to sex. If a, if a woman asks me to have sex, I must say yes. Whereas if they have that more traditional belief that about women's roles, that women should be pure, they shouldn't swear, et cetera, then they might be less comfortable initiating sex because they might not want to pressure their female partners. So I feel like what we've gained from this study, it's definitely just an initial study. It was just one online sample and it was measured at one time point. We can't make causal claims, et cetera. But what I was excited about by this study is just to remind people that when we're thinking about gender dynamics in the bedroom, especially if we're talking about man-woman couples, we need to really think about not just how I think I'm going to behave and what my role is in sex, also how I think my partner behaves, right? Because in romantic relationships, sex is dyadic. And I think it's also important to remember here that when we're doing studies on these types of beliefs, it matters if we're looking at couples versus maybe if we're just looking at like single men, right? So I think specifically in this case, men's traditional beliefs about women predicting less comfort initiating sex is possibly because they're just trying to respect their partner and not put pressure on them. But you're probably not likely going to see that if we're talking about other contexts where there's not that rapport between people. Yeah, I think that finding is really interesting because it feels surprising because traditionally we think that your traditional beliefs about gender are just beliefs about gender. So if you have strong beliefs about this is the way that men should be, they should be the boss, women should be not swearing, then those things go together. But I think separating them out and be, and I guess because I would have thought someone who thinks that about women would be like, in turn, then my role is yes. to be like the initiator. So I think the fact that then in the relationship that leads you to be like, oh, but women are like this, so I don't want to overimpose is kind of interesting. And I guess surprising. <laughs> so splitting those two concepts that feel like yeah, maybe a lot of the times we think of together. And you're totally right, because I had a lot of concerns about that. And like, we did find a correlation in that you're right, like, typically, people have, you know, traditional beliefs about both men and women, but it wasn't as strong of a correlation as I thought. And then when we were unpacking it, it kind of made sense to me in a certain way in that I feel like in 2023, especially a lot of the women I know, feel very feminist and empowered and feel like we should be allowed to be, behave however we want in society, but we might still harbor some of these more traditional views that like men should still be the initiator. They should still do the like yard work and they should watch the sport. So I do wonder if some of that is kind of helping us purse apart the beliefs is that maybe they're no longer as strongly linked as they used to be, I think. Did you see any differences like politically of men who are Mm -hmm. more liberal and maybe see themselves as feminists too? Like you think that they wouldn't be the ones endorsing these traditional beliefs, but if they do see themselves as feminists and then they're like, oh, I, I don't, I feel uncomfortable rejecting sex because I'm still, you know, I'm a man, but then I don't want to like impose and like maybe they're thinking about consent and like, I don't know. Mm, That's a great point. I don't think we had political affiliation in this study and it's definitely something 
I would include in the future for those reasons, I guess. This is actually making me remember that we did, the way we tried to maybe, it's not perfect. One of the things we tried to tease apart was why men with more traditional beliefs about women felt less comfortable initiating sex. And part of it seemed like they had less confidence in their own sexual skills. So I don't think it's necessarily speaking to the liberal conservative question, but I think it is maybe speaking to the idea that it could just be a little bit of a lack of confidence. So maybe I'm giving it too positive of a spin to think that they're caring about their female partners. It could be that they just feel inept at initiating sex, which it's hard to tell. So I, I definitely think it's important to to test these things in the future. I mean, in general, more conservatism is associated with more traditional beliefs, but I'm not sure specifically in our sample because it was an online sample as well. And it included some people, I think, from the UK and America, I believe. That's interesting because it's like maybe there's some causality that you wouldn't assume that like if you're kind of uncomfortable with your own sexual prowess that then you would be like, oh, well, she doesn't really want like She's not the type of person who would want to engage in this anyway. That's really interesting. Yeah. Um, And I mean, I think it speaks to too how sexual confidence and sexual competence are both really important things. And just kind of having sexual self-esteem, I think, is an important precursor, right? And I mean, we could even, I mean, I haven't done this, but we could even link it to the previous discussion we were just having about growth and destiny beliefs. Like presumably you probably need to feel confident in your sexual skills to feel like you can successfully work hard on your sexual satisfaction and things like that. So it'll be interesting to hopefully in the future kind of weave more links between some of my lines of research because right now I've kind of seen them as like disparate, I guess. Well, to kind of bring your work together and to zoom out a little bit, you've done work looking at really just in general, how sex can influence relationships and just the the interplay between satisfaction and sex and satisfaction in relationships. So could you talk about what in the literature review that you did, the different kind of aspects of how both influence each other, and then we can get into your dual process model that you proposed. Yeah. So I feel like it's one of those things that I always say, like sexual and relationship quality are so inextricably tied. And there's been some hints that perhaps the relationship is bi-directional, meaning if you have boosts in your sexual satisfaction, that helps your relationship and potentially vice versa. Although there's less consistent evidence for the idea that having a better relationship will automatically improve your sex life. So I feel a lot more confident saying definitely having better sex tends to boost relationship quality, possibly some kind of cyclical things there, but there really seems to be something to this. And I I think it makes sense, right? I mean, anyone who's in a romantic relationship, I think can understand how the two feed into one another. So more specifically, for instance, this has been shown on the daily level, having sex today, boosting the relationship quality. It's been shown longitudinally as well, which I think is important. So like within person associations, like if I start having better sex this month compared to a previous month, I'm more likely to have boost in relationship quality down the line. And I think it's just in some ways, I guess this is kind of getting a little bit to the dual process model that I had proposed that was also originally proposed by Lindsay Hicks. We were going with this idea that part of the reason sex benefits your relationship is also because sex boosts your mood, right? So having good sex usually makes us feel good. And then what we think is happening is some of those positive feelings then get associated with your partner, possibly even at a very automatic gut level. So if you're having a lot of good sex with the same person, you know, whether it's hormones, whether it's mood, whatever, it's making you feel better usually about your partner and and your relationship. There's some specific situations where I think that doesn't always happen. So I've spent a lot of time looking at individual differences that might disrupt that link, because it should be the case that if you're having a lot of good sex, that should boost your relationship quality, right? It should bond you. You know, we could go to evolutionary arguments, biological arguments, relational arguments, intimacy, like there's so many reasons why having good sex should make you feel better about your relationship. But what was originally curious is that there is research showing there's really not a reliable link between how much sex you're having and your relationship quality, which might speak to the fact that having sex might make you feel good about your partner, but you might not always self-report that in a questionnaire, especially if you might have different motivational processes or maybe you're really stressed. So I think it's not always as easy as saying that 
one or two instances of good sex will make you for sure feel better about your relationship. I think especially because sex is just one aspect of our relationship as well. So when you're saying that having good sex can sometimes not translate into those feelings for your partner, is it just in the way that the reporting is being done, like the way the question is being asked? That's exactly what I think can be happening, right? So even if technically all this good sex should be building up a store of good memories of you and your partner and good vibes and good feelings that might not come into play when you're rating how happy are you with your relationship. And that could be because maybe you just had a fight with your partner, or it could be maybe you're someone who thinks that sex actually isn't that important, right? We can imagine maybe you grew up religious and have taboos about sex. And so all of this good sex, you might not be thinking of that when you're consciously rating how happy you are with your relationship. So I think it speaks to how sex, I think, is a unique part of relationships in the sense that there is a lot more baggage around it. It's not something we always prioritize. I feel like if it was something like communication, it would be more straightforward. Like, yeah, great communication always equals great relationship. But with sex, it's a little bit more nuanced. So to back up a little bit, could you tell us a little bit about the dual process sexual evaluation model that you proposed and what it brings to looking at these questions? Yeah. So it's just trying to, I mean, in a way, it's just trying to write down what's been implied from a lot of other past research and trying to just imbue some kind of theoretical model on the way that sex relates to relationships, because I feel like we have a lot of research now showing that sex helps relationships and things like that, but people don't always try to organize it. And so this was just a way to say that there's a lot of different pathways and sort of boxes, but like, yes, having good sex with your partner should make you feel good. That should make you feel better about your partner. And then that should lead you to say that you're feeling good about your relationship. But sometimes what happens is, like I mentioned, there can be all these motivational processes. Maybe you're pissed at your partner. Maybe you actually are someone who thinks sex doesn't matter. And so it's not like a one-to-one. So having good sex doesn't always necessarily lead to higher self-reported relationship quality. But for the most part, it does because it's making us feel these boosts and positive feelings. And then I like to sometimes even break it down to sort of look at the difference between quantity of sex and quality of sex. So I have in the model that there's an interaction there that you need to be having good sex, like just having a lot of bad sex shouldn't make you feel better about your relationship. If anything, it might make you feel worse. So adding that caveat there. And then what I think can be helpful is then we can think about further factors that might influence the quality of sex you're having. And to link it back to sexual destiny and growth beliefs, I think people high in sex destiny beliefs have a really strong pathway between sex, sexual quality and relationship quality, right? So as I mentioned, they're the ones who, if sex is good, they're happy, but if sex is bad, then that's really bad for the relationship. So I think they are really showing a strong link between those two pathways, whereas I think people higher in sex growth, that process doesn't look as smooth. The quality of sex does not always equal the relationship quality. So speaking of individual differences, are there some people who tend personality-wise to be more likely to endorse Mm. growth versus destiny beliefs? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So one of the things I'll say off the bat is I always find that women tend to be higher on sexual growth beliefs. Men tend to be higher than women on sexual destiny beliefs. In terms of personality, I found some weak associations with the big five. So sexual growth beliefs in particular are associated with conscientiousness, agreeableness, and openness to experience. I think that tracks, right? Because especially conscientiousness is kind of that industriousness, like let's work on things. I've seen a small association between sexual destiny beliefs and extroversion. Not really sure what to make of that, but these are kind of smaller things. But what I would say is the clearer story with personality, if you will, is that I found that insecure attachment is associated with sexual destiny beliefs. And people who are more avoidantly attached in particular are lower on sexual growth beliefs. I feel like attachment styles and attachment gets thrown out a lot these days, especially on TikTok and stuff. But the very short primer is that when we're talking about adult romantic relationships, insecure attachment is usually broken down to two different dimensions. 
attachment anxiety. So if you're higher on that, you fear rejection and you really want closeness, uh, but feel like people aren't giving you the closeness you want. Whereas attachment avoidance is more the desire for independence and the distrust of others, not wanting to get too close. So when I say insecure attachments related to destiny, it's kind of surprising to people. It was surprising to me at the time in that we have those people with those more clingy type craving of intimacy, attachment, anxiety, beliefs, also saying they believe in sexual destiny and those higher in attachment avoidance saying they believe in sex destiny. Now, the avoidance one is usually the one that trips people up, right? Why are people who don't want intimacy, don't want love, why are they endorsing these, what we might see as more like romantic ideas, I guess, of destiny? And I was able to actually find an explanation when I was reading this book called Attached, where it had some more data from clinicians. And what they were reporting there, I think, is my explanation of what might be going on, where avoidant people who don't trust others, really don't like intimacy, I think they sometimes use destiny beliefs as an excuse, if you will, that something goes wrong. First of all, it's their partner's fault. Second of all, it's kind of a way of being like, well, you know, you must not be the one. So bye, moving on to the next relationship. So that's why I think, I think it's kind of this unwillingness to encounter difficulties that's kind of leading them to to endorse some sexual destiny beliefs. So could it be that the anxiously attached people are more likely to have the sexual destiny beliefs and believe that the person that they're with is their sexual destiny and then the opposite oh. happens with the avoidant person where they're oh my gosh. they're endorsing it and then they're like oh but they but you're not the one for me so yeah that's such a great uh, shockingly i've never actually tested that <laughs> so thank you for the idea i'm like going to go do some data analysis after but anecdotally i would say that's what I'm getting at. I think your prediction's bang on. I think we've got the anxious people being confident in their partner. Whereas I think you're right that the avoidant destiny flavor is more the like doubting their partner. So I I will test that. Yeah. Thanks. That's, That's super interesting. Well, since we're talking about attachment styles, we can kind of move out of committed relationships and talk about some work that you were involved in that looked at casual sex and how attachment styles influenced how people approached and their experience in casual sex relationships. So one thing that I loved about this study, because I'm a intergroup researcher and like social neuro, so it's not really like fun stuff to read a lot of the time. (laughs) But I was like scrolling through the paper and looking at the tables and the different categories were one night stand, (laughs) booty call, F buddies and friends with benefits. And that was the first time I'd seen anything like that in a paper. (laughs) So I was just wondering if you could talk about how you distinguished those categories scientifically and like what it meant for the study when you were looking at these different types of casual relationships. Yeah, it's so funny you mentioned that too. Someone later was like, why didn't your paper, you just call them sex buddies? And I was like, oh, I should have. But the reason I used the the profanity term, the F buddies, was because I actually was adopting those four categories and their definitions from work done by Jocelyn Wentland at University of Ottawa. So she actually had done a series of studies really trying to validate these different types of casual sex. And some of that included focus groups with the community. And one of the things I loved was she was able to show that these definitions seem to be things that both men and women recognized and people with or without a lot of casual sex experience also seemed to recognize. So it seemed like, at least at the time, I mean, it's getting a bit older now. I feel like it was like 2011 when this came out. At least at the time, everyone kind of had a shared cultural understanding of these four different types of casual sex. And so they do vary on different dimensions, but I often think about it in terms of, do you have repeated sexual contact with the person? And then also, is the contact you have with them limited to sex? So one of the things I always teach my students about this research, I often make it an exam question, like what's the difference between friends with benefits and a sex buddy or an F buddy? The clear difference that I say, I'm like, it's actually in the names. So friends with benefits are truly friends. They do friendship stuff together. They talk about their feelings. They might go to the mall or to like a movie or something. They are truly friends. And usually they were friends first. And then they've started the sexual element. Whereas sex buddies, when they hang out, it's just sex typically. They're not doing those other friendship things. So that's the one that usually trips people up. I feel like everyone kind of understands what a one night stand is. It's having sex once, no no intention of seeing them again, usually under the influence of drugs and alcohol, which is another big differentiator. 
booty calls. It's the late night you up text. I don't think people use the term booty call necessarily, but I think everyone knows what it is, right? And there's usually that drugs and alcohol thing involved. And again, you're not hanging out with this person in the daylight. (laughs) So essentially, they kind of are varying on intimacy or closeness of the relationship, which I guess is relevant for attachment styles. So in that, could you talk about how attachment styles influence what people preferred, how they engage in these different relationships? Yeah, one of the things I thought was driving our research question was the idea that we felt like, okay, well, maybe anxious people want that closeness. Maybe they'll fare better in casual sex relationships that are more intimate, whereas we thought maybe those more avoidant people would do better in the super casual one night stands. That wasn't actually what we found, though. (laughs) So what we found, and we we did two studies that we kind of combined. We also had a, a comparison condition of being in a romantic relationship. We found that essentially for people with higher attachment anxiety, they were not having a good time in casual encounters, regardless of whether it was one night stand, booty call, F buddy, friends with benefits. So just like across the board, I'm talking less pleasure, fewer orgasm, more negative feelings, less positive feelings. And it really didn't seem to matter the type of casual relationship. So it just seems like if we think of attachment theory, it makes sense, right? It's like they want that closeness and that intimacy and that approval and casual sex is not a good fit for that. (laughs) And then I guess the more interesting story was perhaps then with avoidant folks, because I found that in terms of the outcomes, friends with benefits for avoidant people were looking very, very similar to a committed relationship in terms of like emotions they were feeling, pleasure. So I kept kind of joking that I was like, I think a friends with benefit is like still too close for an avoidant person. It's like too close to a relationship, too much, too much intimacy. And so that was less desirable. I definitely want to replicate this, but at least in these studies, we found this interesting finding that avoidant people might actually enjoy F-buddy relationships the most. So they were having positive emotions in those more so than a committed relationship, more so than, you know, one night stands and what have you. And so I wonder if it's like this kind of sweet spot where, you know, if we think again, as the definition I mentioned of sex buddies, it's like your repeated instance with the same people, you almost become like acquaintances with them, but you're not like sharing emotions and communicating the way you are in a friends with benefits. So our theory is that that might be a specific unique context of casual sex that's just the right amount of intimacy but not too much intimacy where it's letting them get their sexual needs met in that way and I mean again we probably need to do a lot more research before I can say it in a prescriptive way but I would encourage people to be mindful if you know you have a more anxious attachment style really consider for a second do I actually want to be having casual sex am I doing it for pressure and will I get what I want to out of it so another piece of this study was looking at motivations to engage in casual sex and here one of the things was anxiously attached folks were doing it for more relational reasons compared to more secure people so they might be having casual sex to try to like went over a partner to try to get closer to someone. And so I just worry, based on what we know from other research, they might be setting themselves up a little bit for for a disappointment because they might not be getting that connection that they crave. So this is maybe beyond what your research looks at, almost getting towards prescriptive. But since avoidant people seem to be doing better in these F-buddy relationships, does it make sense for them to just stay in that place? Or because I think, you know, yeah. in our in society, it's like the zenith of what you want to get to is this real intimate connection. Oftentimes people think of it as this monogamous mm-hmm. long-term forever mm-hmm. connection. So can you change those attachment styles or is it fine for someone to just yeah. kind of be like, this is where I feel good and why should I change that? I know that's a tough question. Yeah, I mean, that's a su- no, but I like it's a, actually like it's a really good question. And you could have tricked me into thinking you're a relationship researcher because you're kidding on current debates as well. And this priority of the, you know, monogamous, often heterosexual relationship and just why are we stigmatizing being single? There's a lot of people who are happy being single. There's growing literature on this. So I'm going to have like a two-part answer, I guess, to this. because I think the literature would say that, yes, there's happy single people. And my own research would say, yeah, maybe this casual sex buddy thing can be good. I don't think it would be good forever for avoidant people. I think it's a way to temporarily get your sexual needs met. And maybe like, it's a good thing to be in while you're working on yourself, I'd say to try to like, become more securely attached. I think the risk is that we know from a lot of other research that one of the ways avoidant people can become more secure over time is if they're in a relationship 
with a really secure partner who is really patient with them and handles them with kid gloves a little bit, like knows how to bring them out slowly over time. So I worry if avoidant people are in sex buddy relationships, they're missing out on that chance to become secure. And I think there's a lot of avoidant people who deep down do want a strong partner. So I I think that it could be just a temporary fix, I guess, (laughs) if that makes sense. I guess I would say if you're single and avoidant and having casual sex, okay, if you have to choose, seems like F buddy is a good one. But I don't think that means that you should choose casual sex over the possibility of being in a relationship necessarily, unless it's really autonomously motivated. And and I wouldn't want it to be coming. I think with what I'm getting at with avoidance is I worry that it's often coming from a place of fear of a relationship and you don't want that. So yeah, it's kind of a, a mixed answer. But I will say that there's other research on this too. Like I think casual sex gets a bad rap, but as my research and others show, there is often a lot of affection in them. You can get some of your needs met. So it's not always as casual as people think. And I, and I don't think it deserves kind of the negative. I think there's so much negative stigma when we call it casual sex. It kind of, I don't know, for me, it evokes images of frat party hookups and college campuses. But especially with my study and going forward, I want to make sure we're looking at casual sex beyond college campuses. So I tried to purposely recruit older folks as well, because I think you can have satisfying casual sex encounters when it's not peer pressure, alcohol induced things on college campuses. I think that makes a lot of sense. And it just feels like what I'm hearing is that you should just examine why you're doing what you're doing. So like being intentional, because if it's out of fear, that's not great on the anxious side. If you're trying to enter this casual sex relationship with the intention of it being more intimate, then that doesn't really make sense. So yeah, I guess it all comes down to to knowing yourself, unfortunately. Yeah, no, I think you've hit the nail on the head, right? It comes down to like motivations and the alignment between your motivations and and things like that. So no, I think that's a great way to kind of synthesize it down for sure. So I found this episode and Jess's research really interesting. It's funny though, I do find, obviously, I feel like attachment styles are nearly a buzzword at the moment, as Jess mentioned, like with all the TikToks, but I just don't know if we can reduce, how many are there? Four, three? Well, how many are there? I think four. There's I think like, there's like secure, then there there's different types of insecure and the insecure are either anxious or avoidant. And then I think there's an anxious avoidant oh, yeah, they combo like, type really clean and then like run away I think that's yeah deadly combo yeah (laughs) I just don't love the idea of reducing everyone down to like four categories and I don't know if that's helpful because I think we listen to them and we all feel like we identify with one but then I think obviously it's it's a bit more complicated than that and then well, maybe it would be a destiny belief <laughs> because if you like, oh, well, I'm this and they're that. So, and I think then people, I don't know, can use behaviors as excuses with this kind of, oh, well, that's the way I am. And so I'm going to be doing this. So I know a lot of people talk about it and I know it can feel like you identify it in one category, but yeah, I think it's always good to be cautious when you're reducing the whole of the human population down to four different groups. <laughs> I don't think it's that it's that simple. And it's not taking in, you know, yes, we have certain ways of being raised in childhood, but then we, we you know, a lot of other things happen to us in our lives and people experience different things. And I don't know if they're fully captured within the four categories. I think maybe in the relationship space, attachment styles is something that people maybe use more as someone who's outside of that space. I do feel like I don't hear about it talked as much or like I don't hear even as much criticism of it because I think something that attachment styles and I think the criticism that you're levying at it is something that we hear a lot as psychologists about personality in general. Mm, And I think attachment style is kind of like this other form of individual difference. And with personality, I think it's the same idea of like you're slotting yourself into this category. If you take the Myers-Briggs, which is not scientific at all, and there's no 16 personality types, it's not a thing. And really the issue with those things is exactly what you're saying. And I think really the way to think about variation in 
humans is that it's not about you're in this category, but it's about what types of tendencies do you have? And those tendencies can maybe change depending on the types of situations that you're in. And I think in this situation, maybe we can talk about it in terms of like extroversion and introversion. And maybe Mm -hmm. there are people, and that's the thing about like all of these types of traits, right? Is that people will say, I'm an extrovert, I'm an introvert, but really these traits are like a bell curve across the population. So most people are actually going to be ambiverts. Most people are going to be in that middle situation where sometimes they're extroverted, sometimes they're introverted, and they have both tendencies. And I think the same could probably be applied to attachment styles in the sense that there's probably like a decent Mm. bell curve of people having these more anxious tendencies, more avoidant tendencies. So I think the categorization isn't necessarily like you are in this category, but I think it's really about tendencies. I think you would be sorted into that category like statistically for those analyses that Jess was doing if you're scoring super high on things that would categorize you as avoidant the same way that you could be scoring super high on extroversion. So I think it doesn't necessarily mean for maybe people who are listening that you necessarily fall into just one of those categories, but that if you kind of reflect and think, oh, I really do kind of have some avoidant tendencies, I think maybe we all know like one or two people that you're like, they're for sure anxious, they're for sure avoidant, then those might apply strongly to those people. But for most people who are like kind of in the middle, which is going to be the vast majority of the population, I think it's not prescriptive. And I think that's what you're saying, Beth, is like, that's not something that you want to think, oh, I feel like right now I really identify with being avoidant. So maybe I should just be in that F buddy relationship. (laughs) And the other thing is, is that it also, I feel things like attachment styles, it labels things as good or bad. And apparently- Only a few people are good in that, in that case because <laughs> there's only yeah. the secure people and apparently we don't know any secure people, blah, blah, blah. So I just think that that's not great either because then someone's doing something wrong and, uh, yeah, and, like, just treat people well. I don't know. <laughs> Obviously I've got some reaction. Well, you can imagine what everyone calls me. I think that's the <laughs> – I actually don't – so Beth texted me. saying I'm sure everyone if they've listened to our episodes would be able to tell my attachment style and I don't think so actually really yeah I don't think so I thought you'd all think that I would be anxiously attached why do you think that based on what you've shared on this psychology podcast (laughs) because I'm always texting people all the time calling them wanting to make sure they're okay, being close to my friends. Isn't that anxiously attached? That sounds pretty secure. It sounds like you're just, you care about your friends and you (laughs) want to know what's going on with them and you want to express your love. But I actually think that most of the population is categorized as securely attached. Really? Yeah, because most people are okay. Most people are okay. I I mean, you know. Are most people okay? (laughs) I think most people are okay enough, like maybe to not be, I mean, because, you know, if we're thinking about in that bell curve way, a lot of the people are going to be in the middle, so are not going to have like super strong tendencies either way. But I feel like you're securely attached. Like I think you have, I think you have anxious tendencies. I was going to say ex-boyfriends write in, but maybe don't write in. Maybe you'd be surprised <laughs> because you are quite independent and maybe some people would take true. that as she's avoidant. She didn't even want to spend any time avoidant. with me. Avoidant. You know? Wow. I wonder if anyone would ever call me avoidant. Ex-boyfriends write in. <laughs> <laughs> Ava, what are you? Because I would also think you're secure. I think I'm like, again, that yeah. cate- like categorizing yourself, I do think is I feel like I'm fine. I think I'm securely attached, but I think I have both tendencies. Which, again, I think makes sense and that's kind of okay. Yeah. But I think in terms of like takeaways, especially from that study about attachment styles, and this is something that I asked Jess about, but was like, it's really not necessarily about putting those labels on yourself, but thinking like, why am I engaging in these types of behaviors? Mm -hmm. So if you're someone who's like, Beth is so cute and she doesn't want to be with me right now. She's saying that she doesn't want to be with me, but maybe if we keep hanging out and we get physical, then she's going to change her mind. And I don't actually want to just be in a relationship that's purely physical, but 
maybe she'll change her mind, then I feel like you shouldn't be engaging in that type of relationship if you know in your heart Mm -hmm. that that's not what you want out of that Mm -hmm. relationship. And then I think if you're in a situation where you're like, oh, I want to engage in just a casual sex relationship because I know that I'm not Mm -hmm. ready to be in a more intimate relationship, then that seems like a rational self-care type of thing to do if you're just doing the thing that makes sense for you. But I think it was like almost disappointing actually that we can't just use these categories to say I should do this or I should do this because it was like, oh, if I just knew if I could slot myself into a category and say, oh, Mm -hmm. as an avoidant person, I should just be having F buddy relationships. And then Jess was like, no, actually you need to reflect and not run away from yourself. And you're like, oh, damn. I guess. I guess it's about being honest with yourself and honest with people around you. I think that's really what it what it comes down to. But I think unfortunately that takes that takes effort. <laughs> like it's quite hard. It's not like because I think we kind of want these easy answers of oh I could take a little quiz online and figure out if I'm avoidant and then it says that if you're avoidant, it's good to just be in an F-buddy relationship. But then you're like, oh, but why do I want to engage in this? Do I want to change? So it's actually just knowing yourself and being honest with yourself. And that's not a simple task. No, and maybe that was what what I was trying to say initially. Yeah, is that falling into these categories can sometimes feel like cop-outs. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, well, I can just do that now because I'm avoidant or I can just do that. I feel like there's less accountability for your behavior if you put yourself in a category that tells you how you'll behave. Yeah, for sure. And even if someone is in the personality space, even if someone is extremely neurotic and they say that's who they are, that doesn't mean that if they're your roommate, they can like throw out all your stuff because they don't like it. So don't use these things as excuses (laughs) is the conclusion. We'll move into talking more just about relationships and not uh, about sex as much. So in a recent study, you looked at people's expectations of their partners in relationships and how that influenced how they were perceiving their partner's actual actions. Could you talk about how that study was conducted and its findings? Yeah. So this was some great research led by Dr. Samantha Joel. And what we were really trying to do was make a very, very concrete measure of relationship expectations and concrete relationship behaviors. Because oftentimes when we're looking at expectations and perceptions in romantic relationships, it's often very high level things. And we were hoping that if we made the behaviors really concrete, there would be less room for your motivations to come into play. So for instance, if I asked, did your partner do chores this week? Did your partner plan quality time with you? We're hoping that those things are more concrete, that it's harder to have these motivated biases to just say, oh, was he nice this week? Did he appreciate you this week? We're trying to be specific. Did he compliment you? Did he plan a date? Did he clean up after himself, him or hers? And so we were really trying to use this concrete scale to test the direction between expectations, perceptions, and relationship quality, and also the reality. So essentially what we did was it would be like your forecast for the next week. I would ask you today over the next week, do you think your partner will compliment you? And then what we would do is a week later ask, okay, you thought he was going to compliment you a lot. Did he? Well, we didn't say that, but we know that. We'll just say over the past week, How much did your partner compliment you? The idea there being to see whether expectations are preceding perceptions, vice versa. So by measuring all the variables at multiple time points and using a particular statistical approach, we were able to really see the direction between everything. And the reason it was exciting or surprising is we ended up finding that you just ended up perceiving that week what you expected to see. So if I thought my partner was not going to do chores, I would think the next week that he did not do chores, regardless of what he says he did. So that's really important. Didn't seem to matter when we had dyadic sample. It didn't seem to matter what my partner reported doing. It really just seemed to be like an internal process of if I think my partner's going to compliment me, I'm going to report that he complimented me independent of reality a little bit. And what I think we are taking away from this is that it is really hard when we're using self-reports to disentangle relationship quality for, from other things. So I think even though we were trying to be so concrete, 
maybe we'd have to redo it and ask like five times a day, did your partner compliment you? Yes or no? To maybe get away of some of those biases. But I guess the other takeaway is that it seems like I kind of view it in a positive way that if you're in a good, healthy relationship, you're not necessarily tracking every little single thing your partner is doing. So maybe your partner's having a bad week at work and maybe they actually didn't compliment you that much, but you're not really picking up on that. You're thinking of all the times they've complimented you in the past and maybe that's okay. So I guess I kind of focus it in a positive way to say like, if you're having a good relationship, yes, you have these rose colored glasses on and seem to be perceiving these positive things that may or may not have transpired. And I really think it's it's also speaking to how it's quite difficult to get at the truth, right? We can look at my reports of if my partner did his chores, his reports on if he did his chores, who knows what the truth is. Maybe I'm defining chores differently than him. Like there's so many different ways it could be interpreted, but I kind of focus on the self-fulfilling prophecy in a good way that if you expect good things, hopefully you will see them. So does it work in the other direction where if you're not expecting? Yes. So, <laughs> so, so the, the virtuous cycle is also a kind of a vicious cycle on the other side. Exactly. Exactly. So I think that's the more difficult thing to break, right? Because to me, and again, I'm speaking beyond the data here, so I want to be clear about that. But my interpretation would be that if we're trying to improve a distressed couple, it might not be enough to get their partner to do more chores or compliment them more. Like the behavior might not be the issue. I think we really need to target people's relationship quality and their expectations, and then the perceptions might follow. So I guess it's a bit daunting to say, I think the the answer is to make everyone's relationship better. And then they're going to actually think their partner's doing chores and complimenting them. But I I think that's much more important than targeting specific behaviors. So in thinking about how to help a couple trapped in this vicious cycle, I'm not a therapist, but I assume CBT would help with this, right? Reframing things. I think we could even think of just broader relationship interventions that we know about. So making people more aware of their relationship. There's something called the marriage hack, which is reappraising conflict. I think any of those kind of broader couples therapy things or any intervention would help because I think if we get people in a place where they're feeling better about their relationship, then we're going to switch from that negative storm cloud over their head to hopefully starting to get back a little bit more of that rosy (laughs) tinge. And I kind of interpret our findings as you give your partner the benefit of the doubt if you're in a good relationship and you assume that because they love you, they probably complimented you that week. Or maybe you count them saying something that's a bit ambiguous as being a compliment, right? So I think we really just need to work on getting the relationship in a better place which isn't necessarily easy. But again, I don't think getting your partner to compliment you more is going to help or I'm sure it'll help a bit. And I'm sure them doing more things around the house will help a bit. But I think until you have built back up your relationship, those things aren't going to have as much benefit as they could. Yeah. I mean, I I guess it's kind of discouraging to be like, once something is kind of broken, you really have to work to get it back. And then it it will go on its own. But if it disintegrates, that's just tough. But since we're now talking about practical advice, could you give us those, those tips on how to maintain a passionate sex life in a relationship that we talked about at the beginning? Yeah, so my tips for keeping the spark alive or maintaining sexual satisfaction, there are so many I could give, but I'm going to try to focus them just on three. One of them being try new things with your partner. Now, when I say this, I think everyone always assumes I'm meaning like try some exotic sexual position or something like that. But research, a lot of this is being led by Amy Muse at York University. They've been finding that doing something new with your partner, not even in the bedroom context, just in general, can really help with your passion and desire. So that could be anything from trying a new recipe maybe doing a dance class, driving to a different part of town, anything new can really help you self-expand and you see your partner in a new light, right? So I often think of too, during the pandemic, I was doing a lot of virtual escape rooms, things like that, where you get to see your partner in a different arena that you might not usually see them in, see their skills. All of that can help increase your passion because it brings back those feelings of the early stages of relationships where you're getting to know them and really just helps you again, see them in a new light. So try something new. I mean, if, if you want to try something new in the bedroom, that's of course going to be amazing, but it doesn't have to be. So I like to remind people that it doesn't have to be really crazy either. It can be just really small things. So inject some novelty. The second one is communicate. I know it's kind of 
stock answer sounds boring, but I think it's important to know that some research suggests that couples don't really know what their partner likes and dislikes in the bedroom. So leading to the idea of trying stuff that's new, it's like you can't really do that until you know what your partner likes in the bedroom. So sexual communication is key. And then the last thing I'll say is also just spending quality time with your partner, I think is really huge. And so again, that can involve novelty, but even if it doesn't always, we are so busy all of us doing so many different things, we're actually spending less time with our partners than in previous generations and less leisure time with our partners. So making sure you carve out that date night. I work with an app called Coupla that actually helps couples schedule out date nights and gives ideas for date nights. And just make sure that you're remembering to prioritize that because I think it can be really easy to fall into a rut and a routine with your partner. And so you sometimes need that reminder to like go on a date night or, you know, it doesn't have to be going somewhere exotic. It could just be doing a game at home together, asking each other intimate questions, watching a new movie, anything like that. So I think those are my three biggest tips. And then I will just end off by saying there are so many long-term couples who do maintain sexual satisfaction. And then to link it back, I'd say it sometimes just takes a little bit of hard work and effort. Okay. Amazing. Thank you so much. No I feel problem. like those were all doable tips. Okay, so good. Good, good. It'll be <laughs> definitely appreciated. And thank you so much for your time. We really appreciated you no being on the podcast. Thank you to Dr. Jessica Maxwell for joining us this episode. Our intro and outro music is Nobody Stayed for the DJ by Glacio. Our transition music is Back for More, also by Glacio. Minds Matter is mixed, edited, and created by Beth Fisher, she's the Australian one, and me, Ava Madasuza. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode, but in the meantime, find all our episodes and show notes on mindsmatterpodcast.com.